What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration. Our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Thank you, Scott. Welcome, everybody. Here's what's ahead. The Dow taking a breather today after a meteoric six-day run, while the Nasdaq is hitting fresh all-time highs. With the S&P up 25% now since mid-March, and with retail investors having a field day, is this market topping out? Plus, the Baron boasts legendary investor Ron Barron saying that Tesla will be up tenfold from where it is today, even as the stock hits all-time highs. Will he be proven right? And Texas was among the first states to relax its stay-at-home order, letting it expire in April. Now the state's reporting a record number of hospitalizations. What's the lesson for other states, especially those starting to reopen? We'll explore. But we begin with today's wild markets. Dom Chu here with the numbers. Dom? It's a bit of a pause, we'll call it, because it's been a heck of a run for stocks to the upside. And you can see here over the past couple of months a massive surge in stocks. But today the Dow Industrial is down about 200 points. But at the lows, we were down about 421. So well off the worst levels of the day so far. The S&P 500 off about one half of 1%. But the Nasdaq Composite, one half of 1% to the upside. Apple hits a record high today. Amazon as well. Take a look at the small caps versus large caps, the Russell 2000 ETF versus the S&P 500. You can see here we had some pretty big gaps throughout the course of this year so far in performance. Small caps really underperforming. But so far in June, those small caps have really been trying to play catch up. So watch that trade happen. And then the IPO market continues and it's hot. Vroom, not cloud computing. Not any kind of video conferencing system, but an online used car seller up 110%. These guys had an IPO today at $22 per share above the expected range. It got as high as 47.5. You can see there, Kelly, a big move higher, 110%. We'll see if that momentum sticks around for that hot IPO market. It is for now at least. Back over to you. Yeah, we, I mean, that's a big one. Uh, more than doubling so far this morning. Dom, thanks very much kind of emblematic, too, of that you just can't keep this market down. We were setting up this morning for the first big decline in a while as all the momentum names like the airlines, the cruises, the retailers took hit. But investors can't seem to stay away. The Nasdaq's hitting another all-time high now, and the S&P and Dow are down less than a percent. Let's talk more about this now with Michael Cugino, president of the Permanent Portfolio Family of Funds, and Brian Weinstein is head of Global Fixed Income at Morgan Stanley Investment Management. Welcome to both of you. Michael, uh, to you, I, I, I find it quite sort of picturesque, I guess I don't know what the right word is, um, this absolute frenzy of retail interest in the market. Um, and frankly, the Main Street buyers have been uh, on the right side of this trade since the lows. Are they still on the right side today? Uh, well, it's natural to have a sell-off after the run we've had. But, you know, yeah, it, the, on a risk-reward basis, stocks are very, very attractive. I mean, we would recommend probably a more diversified portfolio, but you can't argue with, you know, where else are you going to go, that mentality right now, with respect to growth prospects, looking at the other end of the 
the COVID-19 virus and a potential pickup in the economy uh, and the risk reward of, of what you can earn versus other asset classes. So it does make sense. And I think it's rather interesting, the interest of the retail investor, the millennial investor that's been talked about a lot lately, and the fact that there's been some pretty successful IPOs lately. Sure. Yeah, there, it suggests there's a lot of uh, interest in these names. Brian, you say there are parts of the fixed income market that are still lagging equities. Where in particular can people still find good value, do you think? <laughs> It's a great question because I think every minute we wait, things are catching up. So, uh, you know, at the emerging markets took a little while. They're starting to catch up. The securitized markets where all the commercial real estate payments are, and, and those markets are still a little bit frozen, uh, but we're definitely running out of space. I mean, there's still good income in high yield, right? If you look at the yields on investment grade and high yield, they're now about even with where we started the year, with other rates all being lower, treasuries and, uh, and the like. So there's some income out there and some opportunities, but the rally, uh, you've seen the rotations into all these more cyclical, risky sectors yeah, and, and fixed income, too. I like how you say it's changing by the minute. You know, that value, uh, people are kind of plucking it away. It might be getting a little harder to find. Michael, where do you specifically still think there's good value, either in the stock market, uh, fixed income, or elsewhere? Um, you know, we've been trimming our equity positions a little bit because we run an asset allocation fund and, and stocks have gotten overheated. So that's a natural course for us rather than a market call. But we still like the broad market, especially industries that still really haven't kept up. You know, energies, financials, industrials, biotechs, um, technology still. I mean, these are good industries with long-term growth prospects if you're a long-term investor. Many of them pay good dividends um, in excess of what you can get in fixed income. Uh, and then given the risk-reward profile, it makes sense. On the fixed income side, we've been staying away from treasuries. They just don't – you know, we, we own some, but, but we've been looking more in the low-duration uh, high-quality balance sheet investment grade sector for corporates where the spread's a little bit better. And for diversification purposes, we still like gold and silver as hedges, as a, a, a comprehensive definition of wealth, and for all the uncertainty that, that remains out there that investors haven't been picking up on lately. You know, it's interesting, Brian, as Michael's talking about treasuries, we've had the yields there, which, you know, of course, the benchmark for pretty much everything uh, that we do in this economy. The yields have really moved up from the lows. I mean, almost hit 1% last week and then started weakening again today. And you've got the Fed out there and, and people who follow the Fed talking about yield curve control. Is that something that you're focused on that you think could become a reality? And what would that mean for where treasuries go? Yeah, we're totally focused on that because if you look at one place where growth really isn't priced in, yes, treasury yields are higher, but they're still very, very low. Break-evens are low, so the market isn't looking for inflation. So I think what's interesting for the Fed here is can they continue on this path of stimulating the economy despite the fact that asset prices have gone up because we still know we have a Main Street unemployment issue. So will the Fed come out and say something around yields not being higher than a certain level out the yield curve? They may, right, because they, they in their minds – growth and inflation are still going to undershoot, and maybe that's what stock market likes, that, that, that there's more stimulus coming. They could certainly go down that road. Will they do it tomorrow? Hard to say, but it, they may very well discuss it. You know, it's interesting, Brian. So, again, the quandary here is basically the Fed wants to keep uh, stimulating the economy without maybe starting a bubble in the stock market or something like that. Uh, so they would look to keep interest rates kind of, quote, unquote, artificially low. I mean, we've spent so much time trying to make sure that rates aren't too low why wouldn't they say, hey, it's, it's natural and it's good for rates to rise a little bit more from here? And I guess related to that, why even worry about such a blunt instrument when they have this whole Main Street lending program that is supposed to help, you know, businesses that need capital and it could seem like a much more targeted way to help the economy? 
Agreed. It seems like a, a tough time to do it. But again, if you look back at the last couple of years, the moral of the story has been in every pause, every time when the, the Fed uh, felt like they had done enough, that, that taking the foot off the gas, we haven't had the growth and we haven't had the inflation. So I think the question is, do they really want to try everything at once and risk just what you said? Uh, you know, uh, asset prices going up, we can call it a bubble or not, but, you know, maybe, maybe markets are right that if they continue to stimulate, uh, that it continues to be good and eventually those jobs do come back. But, but I agree that the move in asset prices makes it hard for the Fed uh, to, to be maybe as aggressive as they would have been a few weeks ago. Michael, I'll give you the final word. How would you, in, you know, kind of, what would your advice to investors be if the Fed does go down the, the road of yield curve control? Uh, buy gold. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, we're already devaluing the currency so much as it is. I think the Fed's done enough. I think the, the gradual rise in interest rates lately has been very healthy. Uh, and I'd like to see it continue personally. I think rates are still very, very, very low. Uh, I'd like to see them get out of the way a little bit and not do much more. I don't think they need to. Let's let the economy grow and recover based on the, the monetary policy we have, the backstop that's already been provided, and what's going on globally with central banks as well. I think there's plenty of liquidity. Let's get it out to the economy. Let's get the velocity of money going. Let's rebuild the, the, the demand curve, um, so to speak, and, and keep the Fed out of the way. All right. Michael Cugino and Brian Weinstein, thank you both. A good conversation today. Appreciate it. Speaking of that 10-year Treasury yield, it's yielding about 0.83% right now, but it just went up for a big auction at the top of the hour. Over to Rick Santelli. How'd it go, Rick? Yeah, it was a really nasty auction. I gave it a D minus, dog minus. Uh, Nothing good about this auction. The one-issued market was bid at 82, offered at 81.5. This one goes off 0.832. 0.832 0.832 is the yield at the Dutch auction, higher yield, lower price. From there, everything deteriorated further. 2.26 bid to cover the weakest since August of 19. 56.7 indirects, five auctions since we've been at that level. 11.8 on directs, also super light. And dealers take a large 31.5% of this auction, the biggest amount they've taken since the spring of 2019. Uh, there was nothing good about this $29 billion of reopened 10 years. And it is a reopening. That does make a difference. That means we're adding to an issue that we started uh, uh, auctioning uh, the last auction. There's always two reopenings with the 10-year and the 30-year. As you see in the live market, uh, yields popped up about one basis point or so from 81 to 82, almost at 83. So you are propagating some selling based on uh, the negative returns here for this auction. Kelly, back to you. Rick, this is just the latest in a string of really bad grades that you've given these uh, Treasury auctions. A D minus. That's terrible. It is. But indeed, if you look at the stock market and, you know, think about it this way, where are all those chips coming from? There's definitely been a bit of a change in psychology, although bond funds are still actually doing okay. Uh, And we also have to remember that the Fed could pretty much over time put rates anywhere they want. They've eased off on the size of how much they're doing with regard to QE, especially on long maturities. But it's not bad that rates go up, and it's not bad there's a little bit of avoidance at these areas. Uh, Of course, we want to monitor the other sectors and the economy and see how it all fits together. True. You don't want demand for the safest uh, asset to be too strong (laughs) in a better economy. Rick, thanks so much. Rick Santelli monitoring that action for us. Now, in a market that continues to defy all expectations, investors, especially the so-called Robinhood retail investors, are betting on everything these days, even companies that have filed for bankruptcy. Shares of Hertz are up more than 450 percent in a week. Chesapeake Energy, which was halted earlier and just was halted again today amid reports of a bankruptcy, That stock has soared nearly 150 percent.
percent in a week. Let's get more on Chesapeake's future in particular now. Bring in Brian Sullivan for more on that crazy story, Brian. I think you used the right word, betting. This is not investing. This is gambling. I know I'm editorializing. I don't care. That's the reality, especially with companies that have filed for bankruptcy like a whiting petroleum. Add that WLL. Why do I say gambling? Because if you buy equity of a company that has filed, you are betting on how the courts and the bankruptcy attorneys and the creditor structure play itself out. And unless you're in that courtroom or in those negotiations, you're not going to have any control over how that equity ends up. It could be a goose egg, it could be a zero, or it may have a little bit of value. Chesapeake, let's be clear, has not filed for bankruptcy. There was a report last night that they're imminently getting ready. Guess what? There was a report three weeks ago that they were imminently getting ready. We reported that it could be getting closer in mid to late May as well. They've got nine plus billion dollars in debt. The price of gas, this is a natural gas company primarily. This is not an oil company. Remember that, a lot of debt, nat gat prices have come down as well, Kelly. The stock was halted 22 times yesterday, 22 times. Wow. Why is it halted right now? Yeah, 22 times. I think that the idea, the exchanges just don't want to deal with a stock that is having this kind of volatility. They need to settle things down, try to find a bid-ask spread that is going to work here. I'll leave you with this. Chesapeake Energy was worth at one point yesterday, and I think still is, more than it was three months ago when oil and gas prices were a lot higher than they are now. Gambling, not investing. Obviously, I've got an email and a call into the company waiting for some kind of official comment. Yeah, no, Brian, I, that's exactly what I was just looking at. I mean, looking at the stock price and curious about the market cap, it's still over a $300 million company. So we're not talking about, you know, somebody whose value is already dwindled. Nine billion in debt. Precipitate. Wow, $300 million in equity, $9 billion in debt. And you mentioned Whiting, too. So it's not just Chesapeake. We're, I mean, we're seeing more speculation than usual around these events. Would you say is that because there's more doubt than usual about whether they will actually proceed? Well, I think, okay, they're two different stories. With Chesapeake, <clears throat> you know, and listen, it, it's a good group of management there. We've, they've been nice enough to come on CNBC. They're doing the best they can. They were, it was started by Aubrey McClendon, who, as we know, died a few years ago and levered the company up with debt to buy art and all this other stuff, the Oklahoma City Thunder. They came in with a balance sheet that many thought was unfixable. So Chesapeake has not filed yet, and I think a lot of the betting on the company is because there are people that may not believe it will file for Chapter 11. And maybe it won't. Maybe they can make deals with their creditors, Kelly. Again, it's gambling. If you're not in the room or if you're not talking to somebody in that boardroom mm. with the banks on the Zoom or whatever they're doing, you don't know. Whiting is different. Whiting has filed for bankruptcy, and the stock was above where it was before the bankruptcy. Wow. I think, and I'm going to make... Listen, Kelly... When you have an app that enables people to trade for free and the, the trading providers are, are no commissions when it's free, why not? Hertz, Whiting, Chesapeake, QEP, there's another one. They're all on the top 10 or top 15 of Robinhood. I would mm -hmm. just say to people, hey, you know, what is it like? Be careful out there. You might need a bigger boat. Yeah, and free trading is only free unless you lose your shirt. Luck and Coffee also comes up on that list, another um, contentious fraud story. Brian, fascinating. We appreciate the detail, at least on these two companies. It's so emblematic of everything else going on. Thank you, sir. We appreciate it.
Brian Sullivan with the very latest there. And as you can see, Chesapeake was back open for trade. We'll continue to monitor the situation. Coming up, we're going to talk about shares of Tesla, which are barely pausing today after hitting a fresh all-time high. Famed investor Ron Barron says today's prices will soon look cheap. He'll tell you how high he thinks Tesla will go. Plus, the official record keepers say the U.S. went into a recession in February. The news isn't surprising, but the timing of the declaration is. We'll speak with the man behind the call ahead. Stay with us. This is The Exchange on CNBC. The market doesn't joke around, so why would you? Get serious. Choose Tasty Trade. Tasty Trade gives you the tools you need to make smarter moves. Dig into data with advanced charting, track profit accurately with order chain trackers, see risk clearly with curve analysis, and trade with low-capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more. All on one platform. No wonder serious traders choose Tasty Trade. Join the club, genius. Tasty Trading is a registered broker-dealer and member of FINRA and SIPC. Welcome back. Tesla closed at a fresh record high yesterday at nearly $950 a share. We're just a hair below that level right now. The stock's up more than 50% over the past three months. Billionaire investor Ron Barron was back on Squawk Box this morning saying he still thinks there's a lot more room to run. I would like to be able to get more money to buy more Tesla, actually. I thought that we would make 20 times our money in Tesla. So far, we've made four times. I now think we're going to make you know, double or triple again over the next uh, five years and double or triple again over the next five years. I think there's 10 times more to go in, in Tesla before I have to even think about this, if, I'm, if we're right. Joining me now to discuss the Wall Street Journal's Tim Higgins is here along with Joe Osha, the analyst at JMP Securities, who has an outperform rating on Tesla, just over a $1,000 price target. Joe, why $1,000 in one? Um, to be honest, it was just where the numbers led me. I have a, a target based on uh, next year's EBITDA number, and I brought it back, and that's that's where I, I ended up. So there's no particular significance to it. Yeah, just curious. So what is it in particular that you think accounts for Tesla's rebound off the lows? Because this is not as straightforward a story as kind of the shutdown and reopening of the economy, although that's definitely a part. Well, yeah, obviously this market is is part of it. But what's remarkable to me, here we are, it's halfway through 2020, who else has electric vehicles that can compete with Tesla? And, and the answer is really nobody. You know, Volkswagen maybe is, is starting, but this company is so far ahead of the competition and is going to get even further ahead with the Model Y. And I, I just think the market's beginning to figure that out. You know, Tim, I, I'm looking up uh, Nikola, the, the stock that now comes up on everybody's screens as one of the top Robinhood stocks and, and so on and so forth. Um, how much of the Tesla trade right now is still momentum driven, driven by retail investors, maybe even a halo effect from the great SpaceX launch the other day? Well, it seems like a lot, right? I mean, if you're thinking the future of cars is going to be electric, then the prices we're seeing right now would suggest that you think that Tesla is going to dominate that future. And that's what we've seen over the last few months. And Elon Musk's success with SpaceX uh, in some ways gives investors confidence in the thing that he has lacked in the last few years, and that is execution. So watching him execute in the last few months really has uh, increased enthusiasm. What do you think, Joe, of the Nikola effect? Have you been watching that one? Oh, very much so. What's, what's interesting is that that company has the possibility to do in commercial transportation um, what Tesla has done in passenger vehicles, and all credit due to Tesla, 
uh, let's face it, the, the, the truck is, is late. And so what Nicola's talking about first in electric vehicles, then actually uh, hydrogen fuel cell vehicles, is upending that commercial transportation market. Early days, they haven't shipped anything yet, but it's a it's a pretty neat piece of technology they have. Yeah, the stock is up another 15% just today. Uh, Unreal. Tim, Unreal. <laughs> yeah, it, it, absolutely. Unfortunately, yeah. see, you know, Tim, we've seen stories like this. If it's the cannabis sector, you know, some of the cryptos, we've seen that Tesla's not quite the same. I mean, obviously, it's a real company. It's a huge uh, market cap, and yet it's still extremely volatile. I'm just curious if you think it'll ever trade like a traditional automaker, you know, at a way lower multiple, if that if that's ever going to happen or if kind of the Ron Barron thesis is right here. Well, if it starts trading like a traditional automaker, then Tesla's kind of future is in trouble, right? I mean, that's the, the magic that Elon Musk has done is create um, enthusiasm like it is a tech company. And some of the ways uh, that it has done that is this idea of, of, of software in the car. Uh, we're seeing updates in a way that traditional car companies can't do it. And there's the potential there um, to generate new revenue going forward, the potential to turn these cars into robot taxis in the future in a way that uh, investors don't think that a company like General Motors or Volkswagen are, are quite there or maybe see that as the future for them. And uh, Joe, to the point about how this is, I mean, obviously a legitimate company with great cars and all that. Did you see the Wall Street Journal's review of the Model Y? I think it was, I believe, over last weekend saying it's the best car on the road. Yeah, well, several points. First, uh, I, I saw the Wall Street Journal review and also Sandy Monroe does some good uh, teardowns. It looks like the Y has improved significantly from the from the three. So, again, to the point, uh, Tesla is not standing still. I, I guess I would also like to respond to the comment about how the company is valued. People say it should be valued like a car company. Other car companies grow at two, three, four percent. Tesla is growing at better than 20. So, I think Tesla will be valued like a, a traditional car company if it stops growing. But right now, it, it's it's growing at a tremendous rate. And, and I think that explains why it's valued the way it is. Joe, even being bullish on the company, do you think, you know, a 10x market cap makes sense here uh, based on what Mr. Barron was saying? I'm, I'm not going to comment on that. I, I will say that for all that Tesla has a, a substantial market cap right now, it's still shipping less than a million units a year. And Unless the rest of the world gets its act together, we could see that number be multiple millions. So I, I will say that there is still a lot of growth in the business that I can I can see. All right. Just a monster uh, off of the lows, especially this year. Tim Higgins and Joe Osha, thank you both. We appreciate it. Talking about thank Tesla you. after another run to all time highs. Coming up, Jerome Powell and his colleagues are betting on the subway. We'll tell you how the Fed is helping New York City's transit system get back on track. Plus, Texas reports a record number of coronavirus hospitalizations after it reopened early. Are more shutdowns looming where there are outbreaks elsewhere? We'll ask. Remember, you can always watch or listen to us live on the go on the CNBC app. The exchange is back in a couple. CNBC has quick and easy to understand business news updates at the open midday and close every weekday. Markets, money, and more from Wall Street to Main Street. I'm CNBC's Jessica Ettinger. Follow and listen to CNBC Business News Updates wherever you get your podcasts.
Welcome back to the exchange. Shares of Boeing are falling today after reporting it delivered just four planes in May. That's the lowest total for its month in six decades. Year to date, it's now reported negative 602 orders. Somehow, though, that isn't keeping investors away. The stock is now up 147 percent from its 52-week low, 150 percent now. And it's having its best month ever. At the lows, its market cap fell to just $54 billion. But that value has now more than doubled. In fact, it's climbed back up to $126 billion. The stock still has a long way to go to get back to the top. Despite the recent rally, Boeing is down 43% from its 52-week high hit way back in September of 2019. We'll see if a rise in travel demand and the return of the 737 MAX, whenever it comes, do bring the stock back to all-time highs. Let's get to Sue Herrera now for a CNBC News update. Hi, Sue. Hello, Kelly. Hello, everyone. Here's what's happening at this hour. Just moments ago, uh, New Jersey's Governor Phil Murphy lifted that state's stay-at-home order, although facial coverings and social distancing are still required when leaving the house. And with music and prayers, the funeral service for George Floyd is underway in a Houston church. Floyd will then be laid to rest next to his mother's grave in a Houston cemetery. Amazon is ramping up plans to test its fulfillment center workers for the coronavirus after several outbreaks at its warehouses. Most workers will be testing themselves with a clinical professional supervising. And for the full story, you can go to CNBC.com. And a new report from Experian shows that Americans agreed to record monthly auto loan payments in the first quarter, coming in at $569 as vehicle sales surged ahead of a slowdown amid the coronavirus outbreak. And a little bit of good news here as well. The Eiffel Tower in Paris will begin welcoming visitors again on June 25th after its longest closure since World War II. Face masks will be required for all visitors 11 years or older. But Kelly, you've got to take the stairs. They're not opening the elevator. Oh, I cannot wow. even imagine. But at least it's open. Yeah, I'm trying to think about an 11-year-old wearing a mask going up those stairs. I, yeah, no. <laughs> Maybe next year. Uh, Sue, thanks very much. Sue mm-hmm. Herrera with the latest there. The Fed's reach has expanded broadly with many new lending programs, including now becoming the backstop for the New York transit system. Elon Moy joins me now with more on that. Elon. Well, Kelly, if you've ridden the subway system in New York, you know that it could use a little bit of help, but you probably didn't expect that help would come from the Federal Reserve. Well, now the Metropolitan Transportation Authority is among the first in line to tap the Fed's new $500 billion municipal liquidity facility. In particular, the transit system wants the Fed to backstop as much as $30 billion in transportation revenue bonds that have already been downgraded three times since the pandemic began. In a letter to Fed Chairman Jay Powell, the MTA said, investors have shown confidence in MTA's long-term prospects, but remain concerned about near-term risk. It's also not the only Empire State entity to seek help. The Port Authority of New York and New Jersey has also gotten approval from its board to tap the Fed's muni fund as well. And it's saying that it wants to explore all options to combat a $3 billion revenue shortfall. Now, Kelly, this is new territory for the Fed, and it came under a lot of pressure from lawmakers in New York to make sure that the rules were written broadly enough so that the transit agency and the ports could qualify but of course, critics are going to say this is just the latest sign of the Fed's mission creep. Back yeah, over to you. I think even uh, those who aren't critical would say it's a sign of mission creep uh, because we've just never seen anything like this. Elon, it's interesting, though, that the way that New York Senator Chuck Schumer got personally involved uh, to get this outcome. 
That's right. He directly intervened with Jay Powell, also spoke to the Treasury Secretary about this as well. His argument is that this is not just about New York, but the MTA is one of the largest muni issuers out there. This is about investment in infrastructure more broadly. But of course, this is something that benefits primarily people who live in New York, New Jersey, and that region. So this is going to also raise questions about, is the Fed putting its thumb on not just the scale to uh, influence different sectors of the economy or different states, but now even different subway systems. Yes, 1,000%. We remember the whole uh, debate over the Acela Corridor and you know whether that was worthy of federal funding. Uh, anyway, Elon, thanks so much with all of the details there. Elon Moy with the latest on the Fed's moves. We've got a market flash on Cloudera. Dom Chu, what's going on? Those Cloudera shares, Kelly, have resumed trading after a spike up for volatility. They were up as much as 22%. They're up 15% right now. This on the heels of some Bloomberg headlines saying that Cloudera could possibly explore a sale of the company after receiving some takeover interest, and it has said to have held talks with some PE firms, private equity firms. That's according to sources familiar. Now, we have reached out to Cloudera for a comment. We have not heard back yet, but this is a name, Kelly, in computing data and analytics that's tied to things like machine learning, artificial intelligence, some of those big buzzwords, buzzwords in technology, but still those shares moving higher. We'll bring you more as we know more here. But the stock, by the way, Kelly, over the last year, already up about 116%. Back over to you. Wow. Dom, thanks very much. Dom Chu with the latest there. Coming up, Texas reporting a record number of hospitalizations after the state reopened early. My next guest is part of the Texas health care system and says ICU capacity could be exceeded in as little as two weeks. Plus, many companies are looking to make work from home a permanent option. We'll have a closer look at how that move could backfire. And as we head to break, take a look at the Dow transports. They're down almost 2% today, their first negative day in six. Airline stocks leading the way lower. We're back in two. Welcome back to The Exchange. Texas is reporting a record high number of coronavirus hospitalizations weeks after becoming one of the first states to reopen amid the pandemic. New data from the state health department shows there are now more than 19,000 patients in hospitals across Texas. Uh, 1,900, that is, topping the previous record set back on May 5th. And that's not all. Since it reopened on May 1st, coronavirus cases have spiked by 166 percent in Texas and by more than 18 percent in just the past week. For more on the situation there and the impact across the health care system, let's welcome in Doug Lawson, the CEO of Catholic Health Initiatives Texas Division. Mr. Lawson, welcome. Good morning, Kelly. Thank you for inviting me to talk with you today. Sure. So first of all, do we know where and why uh, these cases and the hospitalizations especially are increasing? We are seeing an increase. Uh, It would be easy to speculate that it's tied to the reopening of the state. Uh, But I think that might be a mistake. Our our most important priority at St. Luke's Health System and others across the Texas Medical Center is to ensure that we have capacity, that we have the staff, and that we have the equipment uh, to care for people safely. Reopening the economy is incredibly important. Reopening it safely is even more important. So why would you say they're not necessarily connected? Um, Obviously, if you're testing more people, the case count could go up. I can see that being kind of separate. But the hospitalizations would would seem to be its own issue. Where are the hospitalizations coming from? Well, that's one of the things we're working closely with our county and local health officials is to trace the patients that are coming in and and are testing positive. We're in the early stages of preparing a a study to begin actively looking at and assessing where the patients are coming from. Uh, we've recently ramped up our abilities to trace patients who are tested positive, 
and we're looking forward to seeing those results. That information will be critical to our understanding of what's driving the increase. Uh, clearly, we are seeing a spike, and we are very concerned about that. We're monitoring our critical care capacity on a daily basis. Yeah. Myself, along with the other CEOs of the health systems, meet every morning to discuss uh, the current situation and, and are preparing to respond rapidly in the event that we need to make changes. So I read here that there's about 71% of ICU capacity in use. Um, if the current growth trajectory continues, that capacity could be exceeded in as little as two weeks. Is that right? Well, the other thing that I'm not sure that those particular numbers take into account are our ability to surge uh, is our surge capacity. So we have the ability to expand our critical care capacity rapidly in the event we have an emergency. That includes accessing unused units, uh, and, it, and it involves uh, accessing staff from other parts of the country and bringing them into Houston, and as well as deploying a more team-based model for care. So we do have the ability to safely treat uh, more than um, we look at on a standard basis. But clearly, we are watching that and are very concerned about being prepared to, uh, in the event that we reach a critical situation. Sure. And up here in the New York and New Jersey region, we're just beginning to reopen. Are there lessons from your reopening that you think leaders up here need to be aware of? We are partnering with the, uh, our Greater Houston Business Partnership, which is a, a group of the business leaders across Houston, to educate the business community uh, around how to safely reopen, encouraging uh, the continued uh, use of social distancing as a critical factor, uh, training our businesses on appropriate uh, cleaning protocols, uh, and making sure that uh, we don't lose focus on uh, proper hygiene, hand hygiene, as we move through the coming weeks and months. Discipline in this space is going to be incredibly important. It's difficult. Uh, we're all ready and excited about reengaging socially, but we have to do this smart and we have to be safe as we're going about uh, the resumption of our business activities. Absolutely. And we're still sort of searching for those answers uh, as to why in particular uh, you're seeing this increase now. Uh, Mr. Lawson, thanks so much for joining me and do keep us posted. Thank you so much, Kelly. T. Douglas Lawson is the CEO of Catholic Health Initiatives Texas Division. Coming up, according to new data, work from home could turn into woes from home for some companies. We'll dig into that. But first, National Bureau of Economic Research making a surprising call yesterday declaring the U.S. is officially in a recession. We'll talk to the NBER president about how they reached that decision next. Welcome back. It's official. The U.S. economy is officially in recession after the longest expansion in history ended in February. That's the determination of the NBER, the official arbiter of recessions. The timing caught some people by surprise, though. For more, I'm joined by James Paterba, president of the National Bureau of Economic Research, which turns 100 years old this year, and our own Steve Leisman. It's great to have you both here. Jim, I'll just start with you. And uh, again, welcome. You know, great to be back. I, I'm uh, sort of... Uh, happily surprised that you guys were able to declare so quickly that this was a recession. I know in, in 07, it took almost a full year. What made it uh, such a clear call? Well, first, I don't think we surprised too many people by saying that the U.S. economy had declined after, uh, after sometime early this year. Uh, but what was very striking about this downturn is, of course, its, its speed and its depth. And that made the analysis you know, substantially easier in terms of uh, the data that we see. You know, what we, what we observe is that there was a dramatic drop-off, as we all know, in economic activity during the, the, the second half of March. 
resulting in dramatic increases in unemployment, uh, dramatic declines in production, and for reasons that in some sense are not the usual sources of business cycle fluctuations, uh, essentially uh, government edicts which were closing down many sectors of the economy. Uh, situations like that make it a little bit easier to identify uh, where the turning point might be than yeah. in, uh, in a more normal situation. Can you explain why February? You know, we understand that the expansion has to kind of peak in the month and then the contraction begins. And I know you put a lot of weight in particular on employment and production, but uh, jobless claims were still fine in February. You know, the U.S. added jobs. Why not have the recession beginning in March? I think I'm very glad you asked because it's it's that the answer is in some sense about the the convention the NBER uses when it defines the first month of a recession. The key the key starting point is the peak of economic activity was in February, right? And March was therefore lower than February. When we say that March is the first month of the downturn, that means that in some sense, you know, month zero, the month in which the recession began, is 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 constructed as February in that in that. But I think it's easier to think in terms of when the peak was, and the monthly peak was very clearly in February. Interesting month zero, Steve. It, it reminds me of you know trying to figure out what year. It, month zero is uh, the start of the of this recession. Yeah, and, and that's just the way it's done. But but if I could, I want to ask Jim a, a couple of quick questions here. Uh, Jim, uh, we love having you back, but but let's say we don't want to have you back and we don't want to wait for the NBER to declare the end of the recession. H how will we know that it's over? What will you guys be looking at? That's one. And two, discuss this curious line in the um, uh, towards the end of your release here where it says uh, it warrants the designation of a recession, quote, even if it turns out to be briefer than earlier contractions, there's a sense there that you guys have this feeling that maybe this is going to be over pretty quickly. Yeah, I'm going to start with the second, Steve, uh, and you know, want to emphasize okay. that the committee, the committee has no crystal ball, right? So we don't have a view of how long the recession uh, might, might last. But you are right that the committee acted more quickly this time than it typically does. And as the committee was contemplating whether or not it could determine that the peak had, had been passed and that we peaked in February, one question was, well, given the definition of a recession, which is usually a decline in economic activity spread across the economy for, for a period of several months, you know, did we know yet whether it would be for several months? And we were confident that we could see you know, in, in, in the existing data that there was a sharp decline in, in March and in, and in April. Uh, we were not sure, of course, yet what was going to happen after that. And the committee, you know, the committee was, was in some sense with that, with that remark was, was trying to speak to the even if the even if the trough turns out to be two months uh, after the, the peak, uh, the depth of this downturn is such that the committee felt comfortable labeling that as a as a recession. Right. I think another way to, to, to pose this is to say, you know, if if you were to decide that this was that, that a two month recession, but a decline in economic activity as sharp as what we saw earlier this year uh, was not a recession, you would forever have an asterisk in the in the data charts and next to the, huh. the, the figures and graphs, because you would see this dramatic increase in the U.S. unemployment rate, this dramatic drop in in output. And if there wasn't a shaded bar there telling you that that was a that was an economic downturn, yeah. uh, it would seem a little strange. So it was a, in some sense, it was almost a, a trade off between uh, between depth and, uh, and 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 length that the committee.
that he was trying to speak to there. Uh, on your first question, which is how to how to think about what the indicator signs will be for the upturn, uh, I think it's the it, it's the usual suspects, right? I mean, the committee is looking for uh, real output and it is looking for employment as the the key signals. <clears throat> and uh, you know, in, in this particular case, uh, the, the the lineup around the peak. Uh, was very was very helpful in the sense that most of these indicators peaked uh, in the same month. Uh, that has not always been the case in the past. And sometimes, as you know from from uh, from what I know or your close reading of past announcements, uh, there are situations in which it's hard to trade off. Uh, how does one think about uh, situations when GD, you know, GDP and GDI might actually differ in terms of the month in which they they show a, a peak or a trough, and that can that can throw you into analyzing the statistical discrepancy and and other things like that. But this time it was much easier. Yeah, and GDI is gross domestic income, which again can be used to kind of corroborate all of this. I guess my final question is. We've never in recent history, I guess, going back to 1854, seen a recession that was less than six months long. And even that six month recession was in 1980 when it was the start of a really bad double dip recession that went on for quite some time. So, you know, if, Jim, this recession is only two, three, four or five, five months long, I mean, that would be really unusual and, and kind of goes to just what a strange period we're living through. Um, is it possible that it's already over? that it ended the month that the rebound and employment began, which would have been May? It, it, it's possible, but I think it's far too early to tell the answer to that question. Uh, but I think I think you made a very important point in that one of the things which, of course, could make this this downturn different is that the source of this downturn is very different from traditional downturns in the past. Uh, not 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 you know be, because in some sense we were we were in almost immediately like turning a turning a spigot and turning off large sectors of the economy. So I don't think it would be particularly surprising if it turned out that the upturn dynamics turn also turn out to be somewhat different than, than those in a typical in a typical uh, recession. But of yeah. course, it'll be it'll be quite a while before we know the answer to that question. Well, we hope we can see you back soon because it's, you know, just that clear cut <laughs> that uh, that we're already out of the woods. Uh, Mr. Paterba, thanks so much. It's a pleasure to have you here. Great to see you both. And Steve, thanks very, very much for bringing that to us. Steve Leisman and James Paterba, president of the National Bureau of Economic Research. Well, Republicans have made Opportunity Zones a touchdown of their plan to help struggling communities. Uh, and with the IRS relaxing rules for investment, the wealthy are taking notice. But will the money go where it's needed? That's next. Before we go, let me just mention the NASDAQ just traded above 10,000 for, I believe, the first time. Remember, this index was already up 10% on the year. We just crossed the 10,000 mark for the NASDAQ composite. We're at 99.93 right now. We're back in two. Welcome back. President Trump and Republican members of Congress have made Opportunity Zones a centerpiece of their plan to help struggling minority communities. Now the IRS is relaxing rules around the program and investors are taking note. Robert Frank joins me now with a closer look at how and whether the money is going where it's needed. Robert? Hey, Kelly. Well, the Treasury Department giving investors more incentives to invest in those Opportunity Zones, which have become central to the White House efforts to reduce racial inequalities. Opportunity zones allow investors and developers to defer or avoid capital gains taxes by investing in certain designated areas. The new guidelines give investors more time to invest in a project and they waive certain penalties and benchmarks. Now, several Republican members of Congress looking to expand this program even more to attract more capital. That's because opportunity zones were expected to bring in over $100 billion. So far, it's more like $10 billion. 
Got on top of that, critics saying the program helps investors more than low-income communities. Projects being funded so far include luxury hotels, condos, and retail complexes in affluent areas like Manhattan, Miami, and the Bay Area. Now, they are funding some affordable housing in some struggling areas, but there is no reporting requirement, which means that the Treasury Department will not be releasing data on what projects are being funded or what impact they might have. Kelly, back to you. It almost seems set up to fail. Robert, thanks so much for that update. We appreciate it. Robert Frank. Still ahead, the onset of coronavirus in America had working from home like the perfect solution to keep companies humming along. But just as those like Twitter and Facebook have looked to make it permanent, experts are warning it could all backfire. That's next on The Exchange. Some of the most forward-thinking companies like Facebook, Twitter, and Shopify are instituting work-from-home policies as a result of the shutdown. But as life returns to normal, the permanent shift to working remote could cause more headaches than it's worth. Here to discuss our Laura Foreman, heard on the street columnist for the Wall Street Journal, and Ben Weber, president and co-founder of workplace data analytics firm Humanize. Good to have you both back. Laura, I'll start with you. In what ways do you think this could backfire? Thanks, Kelly. Good to be here. Um, so I think uh, all of my sources tell me that while there are certainly benefits to working from home for specific people, specific companies for a specific amount of time, those benefits right now are almost definitely amplified by the fact that the country has been essentially closed for the last few months. And so there have been limited outside distractions. Um, but, you know, experts are also saying that that things like children at home can be just an absolute um, debacle, just disaster uh, for working parents. Um, I know for me, if I can get through this interview without one of my three children running in, it'll be a small miracle. But I think um, loneliness is also a huge factor. Um, studies, uh, a study from a couple years ago actually showed that productivity did increase uh, in a Chinese um, travel company, but that 50% um, of the employees who were working at home actually felt so depressed and lonely that they wanted to come right back to the office. Yeah, we, anecdotally, that absolutely uh, has rung true, and other people have mentioned it as well. And feel free to show us the kids, Laura, if they do come running in. We'd oh, no, you, it's, no one wants to see that. <laughs> uh, spoken like someone trapped at, at work from home for the last couple months. Ben, you guys have done a lot to analyze productivity. Uh, what is your data telling us about just how productive people are at home these days? Yeah, I think that's the concern is that near term, really, as Laura was saying, there's there's less of a hit. But that if you look at longer term, a lot of what we're seeing from our data across these are mostly large uh, multinational companies is really a reduction in the amount of communication for weak ties. These are people that you don't work with very much, maybe talk to once a month. And that communication is really nosedived, which if you think about medium to long term, really impacts milestone attainment. It impacts the quality of products and services. And so I really think over the next year plus, we're going to see a pretty big impact uh, from that. Yeah, it's sad. I mean, those are some of my favorite interactions around here, for sure. Um, you know, and again, I, I get to keep coming into the office. But I'm curious, a lot of people the last several years have intentionally designed their workplace. I think Apple comes to mind in order to facilitate those kind of casual encounters. Are those going to have to go away now because of coronavirus? How many permanent changes do you think we're going to see in the workplace? I think there's obviously a, a medium to long term uh, effect there. There are certainly things that we see our customers doing around trying to replicate some of those interactions now in terms of randomly scheduling two or three coworkers to have lunch together virtually um, every week. You look at things then, though, as companies in 
different regions are moving back to the office, I think there is going to need to be a reduction of those kind of interactions because they are a risk from a health perspective. Um, and so it is ironic to your point. There's a question of what is the value of a workplace mm-hmm. if we have to uh, reduce those interactions. And I think you're just going to see lots of companies experimenting and trying to use data to understand what's being effective because no one can credibly claim they know what's going to work in the future. Right. Laura, you know, I, I guess the issue is that people, when they start thinking, OK, well, I can do work from home permanently, might start making big life plans. They might move out of where they're currently living to somewhere more rural. They might get rid of their child care. They might, you know, do and, and all around the idea that they may be able to keep doing this permanently. But you're saying, hey, wait a minute, companies may not be so thrilled at that prospect after all. Right. I actually was just researching as a follow up to a piece I wrote about a bunch of cities that are offering incentives for people to move there. Um, Savannah, Georgia, as of I think today or yesterday, is offering $2,000 for technology workers to move there. So you mm. can see how there would certainly be incentives. Um, but but also, you know, even Facebook, Mark Zuckerberg saying um, those those in-person interactions um, have really been missed. And so he's thinking of asking employees to kind of center themselves around hubs so that they can um, occasionally continue to, to collaborate. Interesting. And yet, you know, what that hub will look like over the next couple of years uh, still remains an open question. Thank you both. Laura Foreman, Ben Weber, with a little bit of a deeper dive onto the work from home trend. We appreciate it. And that does yeah. it for The Exchange today. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. CNBC has quick and easy to understand business news updates at the open midday and close every weekday. Markets, money, and more from Wall Street to Main Street. I'm CNBC's Jessica Edinger. Follow and listen to CNBC Business News Updates wherever you get your podcasts.